Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Meducators podcast, where we invite members of the UBC medical education community to tell their stories about becoming a medical teacher, how they got there, and what keeps them going. I'm your co-host, Debbie Basco. I'm a faculty development associate in the Vancouver Fraser Medical Program, as well as a hospitalist physician at Burnaby Hospital. I'm joined by my co-host, Derek. Hi, I'm your co-host, Derek Chang, an addiction and family physician in Vancouver. At this time, I'm a fellow at the Center for Health Education Scholarship at UBC Medicine. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people, through which we have the privilege of working and residing on these lands. Today, we'd like to welcome Dr. Wesley Jang. He's the Department Head of Critical Care Medicine at Burnaby Hospital. He's an emergency medicine physician at Vancouver General Hospital. He's also the medical lead of the simulation program within FHA of simulation. And he is also the site medical education lead for Burnaby Hospital. Welcome, Wes. Thanks, Debbie. Wes, you and I work together already, so we know each other quite well. Uh, Derek and and Wes don't know each other so well, but what I know of you is that you're an amazing uh, ICU doc who's gotten us uh, out of trouble at Burnaby Hospital on a very regular basis. Um, But I don't know a lot about your backstory. Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into medicine and how you got into ICU and emergency medicine. Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. Uh, Derek, nice meeting you as well, too. And uh, I think things happen naturally. I uh, started off in um, university and I actually started as a pharmacist. And I was a community pharmacist for a bit, but um, you know, I never really had any inclination going to uh, uh, medical school up until maybe I started working a year or two and thinking, okay, well, this sounds a little bit interesting. And so I applied and luckily I got in, um, did my... Uh, training at University of British Columbia. At that time, I actually had some pretty cool opportunities to work in some quite um, you know unique situations. So, had some time to work in Haiti after an earthquake, and um, spent some time in Nepal. And I figured that the s- skills and the knowledge needed to kind of be the jack of all trades um, kind of aligned with area of emergency medicine. So I applied for uh, the residency at UBC in emergency medicine, and they accepted me. And in my fourth year, um, we have kind of a subspecialty year where we're able to pursue our interests. Uh, simulation was one interest of mine, so I spent a whole year doing a simulation uh, fellowship. And I also like acuity as well, too. And hence, uh, my application to the critical care program at UBC and I guess, I don't know, five, six years down the road, here I am. You know, a little bit less hair on my head, a little bit more adipose tissue around my waist, but uh, I'm still here and <laughs> smiling. So that's that's me in a nutshell. That's awesome. Um, you clearly love it, but uh, I'm sure it's challenging as well. What are the most challenging things about working in the ICU or in the emergency department? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's not a secret that the last three years or so have been extremely challenging, both from a kind of emotional and physical standpoint. Um, You know, the pandemic, of course, um, affects everyone. But early on in the stages of the pandemic, you're working long hours. uh, You feel like you're providing the best care, but um, up until the vaccinations and the numbers have come down, you feel like you're just 
you know, going up uphill battle, right? Um, it was quite difficult, I think, to see families and, you know, friends go through kind of difficult time. And, you know, as a physician, we all go in to try to help people and you even kind of feel helpless. So I think those are most recently the challenges, but there are definitely some some great things about this field, specifically in the critical care. I think one of the most important things and the things I take pride in is, you know, you take care of a patient at the most difficult time of their life. You know, um, I always say this to my students, no one expects to be in the emergency department that day or in the critical care that day. So there's inherent trust when they do enter your department that, you know, you are the best person for this job to ensure that they get better. You know, you're committed to your patient and when you have great outcomes, uh, that's a good feeling. It's very rewarding. I can imagine that it is very stressful all day long, every shift to work in an ICU or an emergency department. What, how does it feel for you day in, day out? Um, you know, it's, it's a norm, I think. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's, it's unpredictable. Uh, there are days where, you know, it's not that intense, but there are, um, those are rare and far in between. Um, but it's fine. I think uh, you just got to be, uh, prepared that you don't know what to expect during the day um, and prepared uh, that you take care of yourself and make sure that you eat and sleep and, and um, you know, be kind to people. And when they are kind to people, they're kind to you as well, too, and have a great team to help us out. Um, so that kind of helps you face the day. Yeah, looking after yourself is really important. And you have learned over over years how to do that. As a, as a medical student, um, if you're if it's your first day in an ICU in an emergency department, uh, they're starting out fresh. Uh, what's it like to be a student or a, a new learner in the in the ICU or in the emergency department? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think it can be quite daunting for sure. Um, we have junior learners come in uh, both in the emergency department as well as uh, the the ICU, and I think first and foremost when they do come in, you got to make sure that you're supporting them and they're there to learn, right? And not just the medical aspects of it, but the, you know, the human aspects of it too, right? Uh, you know, I sometimes catch myself saying this as well, but, you know, I would say, oh, the person in bed 350, the urosepsis or the brain bleed in bed 360, like I often catch myself saying that. And I often tell my students that every person here is not just a diagnosis or a bed number. So, you know, I think that's the main thing is to make sure that, yes, everyone here is sick. Uh, it can be quite um, stressful and quite daunting, uh, but if you treat everyone with, you know, respect and dignity, the the medical skills and the medical knowledge will come with that, right? Um, ultimately, you know, the main thing is to ensure that we treat everyone here with uh, with the utmost care and respect and, and and dignity. I remember the first time I met you, and I'm guessing that you probably don't remember this because the focus was on the patient, but I was on the ward with a couple of you know, very junior medical students. And uh, the patient that we happened to be seeing was not doing well. So I yep. called you and I'd never met you before. And you came in and you were going to take the patient to the ICU. And I said, um, well, I, I have these med students. And you said, you just said to them, come with me, follow me. And they, <laughs> yeah. you whisked them away. And I was so impressed because as challenging as teaching is for all of us in the medical community, the ICU must be the hardest place in the world to teach. Uh, do you, how do you find teaching in the ICU? Yeah, uh, I think I'm better at it now than I was in the beginning. Um, and, you know, I always kind of reflect upon how I learned and that what got me to this stage. 
um, sure, you have to ensure that your learner is well supported and not overwhelmed, but you also want to make sure that they have the autonomy and um, the experiences and as much exposure as you can. So there are pockets of um, time where you can do a sit down teach and talk about something like sepsis or respiratory failure, a you know, quick 20, 30 minute PowerPoint lecture, sure. But the most powerful teaching is experience, right? So, you know, why don't you come join me and take a look and see how I intubate this patient and we can talk about it afterwards. Um, how about, um, you know, you see me do the central line of this procedure and uh, you gown and you can do part of it. And the next time you do it, you're going to do it while I watch. And the next time you do it, if you feel comfortable, uh, yeah, you're going to do it yourself with me in the background. So I think there are opportunities uh, for sure. The challenge is, you know, everyone here is quite sick. Uh, you want to make sure that they're being cared for, for by the best and most skilled physician. Um, but I think there are pockets and opportunities that are definitely powerful for every learner to experience and um, uh, just, just find those opportunities. Uh, I know that you are very involved in simulation, and I have to admit that I don't know that much about simulation. Um, can you tell me a bit more about simulations and what actually happens in a simulation lab? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, one of my passions have been uh, simulation education, and it kind of all started back in my residency. And it all kind of just started off having these sim sessions uh, in the lab where we run through cases. And really what simulation education allows us to do is a few things. It allows us to practice rare procedures or specific patient situations in a safe environment where, you know, we want to make mistakes so we can talk about it. It's interdisciplinary, so it's not just physicians, there's nurses, RTs, uh, social workers. In a way, one of the most important things about SIMS is it's not actually the actual simulation, it's the debrief afterwards. So um, this is where we call the art of simulation, where we would have a simulation session and at the end of it, We'd go around and discuss uh, certain aspects of it, and you know, allows us to kind of dive deep into why we made those decisions, what uh, we could improve upon, and what we did well as well too. Um, there's an old kind of saying, you know, in Vegas, "What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas." It's kind of what happens in Sims stays in Sims, right? So you know, it's a safe environment for us learners to kind of build our skills, communication, and just kind of improve patient quality and uh, and care. I wonder if it's probably maybe a lot of uh, like listener might not know a lot about simulation. So I wonder, um, Wes, could you give us an example, like just paint a picture, for example, like what is like a simulation? Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> oftentimes uh, our simulations uh, are what we call in situ simulations. So it's no longer, I mean, we do have it in a lab sometimes, but if there is the space and the resources, we would do it in the department. So um, I can take you through uh, a typical simulation day where, you know, a set time, say seven o'clock in the morning, uh, we will have uh, nurses, RTs, physicians, uh, and we will book to say like recess or trauma bay in the emergency department if, if it allows us to. Um, there would be a kind of a quick pre-brief where we would introduce each other and go through the sim rules. Uh, again, well, you know, the safetyness and, and so forth and run a case. So a case could range from anything from a ACLS case to the most recent one was say a trauma case, a stabbing case. It allows like a very group participation. And then once that's done, we will stop uh, and then we would do a debrief. One person will leave in the debrief and we'll talk about the case and how it can uh, be applicable in our careers. I like the uh, 
the thought of giving permission to fail and that it's actually encouraged to make mistakes. Um, yeah. How do how do learners in a sim lab, and I guess learners are not just medical students or residents, they are actually staff physicians too, or nurses or RTs. Um, how, how do they feel safe in the simulation lab? Yeah, I think the main thing is setting ground rules. Uh, so that's where the pre-brief usually starts. So ensuring that it's okay to make a mistake. And that's really the reason why we're doing this. No one's going to be faulted or be angry or ashamed, or nor they should be. So I think people who participate have that mindset going in. Now, there are a lot of people who say, you know what, I don't really feel comfortable doing this and it takes them a little while to get kind of used to it. But ultimately, a lot of them are quite happy to do it. And uh, yeah, right. It kind of puts you at a kind of a vulnerable position, right? Um, you know, especially your colleagues and, and so forth. But um, it's a very powerful tool to learn. And if we do make a mistake or a issue comes up, then we kind of talk about it. So um, is it a knowledge, basically a knowledge thing? So uh, the very common example is intubating using your right hand for the ringoscope, but there's no right or wrong way. It has to be left hand. That's the way it's designed or upside down, you know, like that's the way it's designed. So is it a knowledge thing? I, I assume it's fair to say that you can find something good about how every learner has performed, even if, you know, they haven't done some of the exact steps, right? Is that a big part of debrief, sort of looking at people's strengths as well as opportunities for yep, learning? For sure. For sure. I think, uh, yes, it's a very vulnerable, uh, very vulnerable situation for our learners. Um, but it's a very powerful tool and, you know, it's not always negative and it sh nor it should be always negative. Right. Um, and I even think that even using the term negative is correct. It's an opportunity to grow an opportunity to learn, you know, it's better to do it in the simulation than to do it in real life. Right. Absolutely. How does, um, working together on a simulation enhance teamwork when you're actually working together in real life in subsequent shifts? Oh yeah. I think it's been great. So we tend to do regular sims here the icu can only run so well amongst your team right we have you know a group, great group of nurses and rts and social workers and and uh, dietitians and pharmacists um but number one i think it builds morale um it builds trust uh and it builds fami familiarity amongst your colleagues um you know uh now when I have to do a crash intubation, the RTs know exactly what I want and they have to say it, they put it in and we've done it so many times, right? So it's just repetition after repetition. And, um, you know, if there's a bad outcome, we kind of use the debriefing script that use that's in SIM uh, for our own debriefing after a bad outcome in real life. It just shows that, you know, we care about our craft, we care about our patients, uh, to be able to kind of take analysis of what we can improve upon and how we can better uh, serve our community and our sick ICU patients. So that same medical student who walks into the ICU and you know they've been through a sim or two, how do you think their first shift or two is um, in the ICU? Is it a different experience for them than if they had never been through a simulation? I think so. Um, you know, we try to emulate as best as we can real life, right? Um, you know, everyone loves doing sims because uh, it's, you know, hands-on, it's interactive. It's not like sitting in a lecture and and looking at, you know, a PowerPoint slide again, too. So uh, I think, you know, for me, I see a bit of a difference. And I think I've had some 
learners being like, yeah, I did this as a sim. Um, so when they see it for the first time, it kind of just adds uh, to their to their experience. Are there? Um, it, it feels like there is room for medical school curriculums to shift from um, certainly less lecture based, uh, but even less small group hypothetical case based to mm-hmm. more sim labs. Are you advocating for that? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You know, I think I'm on um, multiple meetings uh, a week with simulation experts. The trend, I think, going forward is simulation education. Right. Um, you know, I even look back at kind of my path into this career and I can't tell you what I learned in medical school uh, like 10, 15 years ago, but I can definitely remember my, my first, you know, sim insight to sim exercise uh, in VGH. It was a, a angioedema and I couldn't get the airway and um, you know, we debriefed it afterwards. And since then I've been uh, a little bit more comfortable doing so, I would say <laughs> um, with those types of situations. So I think it's very powerful uh, and it sticks um, as opposed to kind of just looking at the PowerPoint. Next question. Uh, can you describe the Krebs cycle? And no, I'm just kidding. Definitely not. Definitely yeah. not. <laughs> no, I think the part of the brain uh, involved in simulation must be very different from learning all those other factoids that we learn in medical school. It seems to be a lot sturdier, a memory. Yep. Component. And that's a, not really a neurologic term, but it just feels like it just yep. sticks, doesn't yep. it? Yeah, and uh, you know, just like technology has definitely improved, uh, and it's not to say you need like a million dollar mannequin. There are definitely lots very fancy mannequins out there, but um, you know, we've even done uh, most recently a simulation up uh, in a rural hospital, uh, Vale, where uh, they had Google glasses, and um, I was the one kind of looking at it uh, via the camera. And I would see exactly what the uh, physician would see. So when they intubated, I saw the person looking at the patient or the mannequin. And then I debriefed how many thousand kilometers away via telehealth. So uh, there's definitely tons of opportunities to reach the smaller communities as well, too, and increase education up there as well. And I'm sure there's applications to more than just the critical care emergency setting. I can think of, you know, there's probably a ton of surgical simulation yep. and primary care type simulation. I guess that's the standardized actor patient model. Yep. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, even uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, the the sexy, like, you know, resuscitation or anything. We've expanded to one great program here at Fraser Health. It was a palliative care simulation where we talk about difficult conversations with patients and code discussion. And that's run by our palliative care team who, uh, and I think it's been, it was well received that we're continuing to do so um, on a regular basis. So uh, yeah, it can expand to all realms of medicine. You mentioned earlier about like you were in a goggle um, doing a simulation, right? Helping somebody in the rural sites. Uh, remind me of something I read about like virtual reality in simulation. Yep. I wonder, yeah, what's your experience with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the only experience I've had with that is going to the vendors and trying it. Uh, it is trippy. It is awesome. <laughs> I think it's the wave of the future for sure. You know, they have augmented uh, uh, kind of virtual reality with the virtual patient and you can pretty much assess, listen to heart sounds. Uh, I think um, there are lots of opportunities in the future for that. Uh, so stay tuned, I think. Uh, I think that's definitely something up and coming and very exciting. I actually feel like we've just been through a simulation here with talking about codes and trauma yeah. and things. Um, 
you touched a little bit on your own um, uh, work-life balance and managing stress. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? How do you debrief yourself after a really challenging day at work? You know, I'm still working on it. I don't think I'm perfect at it. Um, you know, um, there'll be a lie to say every day is, you know, I'm happy-go-lucky kind of, you know, uh, person uh, because it is difficult. You're dealing with very difficult cases here, but I think it's a, like you hit it on the spot. Like, how do you debrief? So first of all, is kind of being able to recognize that you need that time off and you need um, that recharge, right? You know, for me, I have excellent network of family and friends here. I have a excellent and uh, very supportive partner, fiance, who uh, she's kind of my backbone, my, my rock. Um, so being able to come home and, you know, see her, uh, kind of all worries kind of melt away. So, which is kind of nice. One thing that's quite, uh, special about Burnaby hospital is I'm from Burnaby, uh, and my parents still live three, four blocks away. So it doesn't matter what level of physician you are or how successful or whatever you are. Once you go home, there's always a home cooked meal. And that's like the most humbling thing ever. (laughs) They will always, you know, make sure that you're grounded and ensure that uh, you're well taken care of. So uh, I can't thank them um, enough. Uh, Work is serious. Life can be serious, but you also would be able to find joy and happiness in other aspects. I wonder if you have some message or a piece of advice for um, people out there thinking about teaching. There's no secret right now, I think, that you know, the healthcare system is obviously quite challenged with pandemic and so forth, but it's very difficult to find time for teaching. But again, I think it's important to remind ourselves, especially who have been fortunate to be in these situations and our, our careers right now, that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for our teachers and our mentors and the people who got us there. So I think, number one, there is always time, even five, 10 minutes of dedicated teaching. Number two, I think learners would probably are probably learning without you even knowing, just being in the experience and being with you and observing how you interact and deal with patients and your thought process. And then number three, I think the reward of seeing your students learn and thrive is very satisfying and definitely worth it. So uh, those are the three things I kind of identify as uh, motivation to, to do so. Well, that sounds like a fantastic way to wrap things up. I know that you are actually on call for the ICU right this minute. Thank you so much for speaking with Derek and I this evening, Wes. Not a problem. My my pleasure. It was it was a it was a great time. Thank you, Wes. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more from the Magicator podcast, please check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and whenever you get your podcast. Stay healthy and safe, and we hope to see you next time.